Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Good afternoon, everybody. It's great to see faces in the room in person, as well as all of you online. Um, Welcome to the Commonwealth Club. I'm Lenny Mendoza, and I'm pleased to be the moderator for today's program. Uh, Previously, I was the chief economic and business advisor to Governor Newsom and senior partner emeritus from McKinsey. Before introducing Dr. Daly, a quick note about the club. We've returned, as you can see, to stage our signature in-person program in our lovely facility here on the Embarcadero in San Francisco, and we expect to increase our in-person programs over the next few weeks and months ahead. So is no better time to become a member of the Commonwealth Club. Visit us at www.commonwealth.org to learn more. Okay, so I'm so pleased today to be able to welcome back to the club Dr. Mary Daly, the president and CEO of the Federal Reserve Bank of San Francisco. Dr. Daly, as we just heard, was here a couple of years ago when we were in a slightly different economic environment. So today is a great time to get an update from Dr. Daly about what she sees going on in the economy. As a participant in the Federal Open Market Committee, she helps set American monetary policy that promotes a healthy and stable economy. Today, of course, she will discuss, among other things, the Fed's role in combating inflation at this critical time and navigating the choppy economic waters of this country as we continue to emerge from the pandemic. A brief about, bit about Dr. Daly. Dr. Daly began her career with the San Francisco Fed in 1996 as an economist specializing in labor market dynamics and economic inequality. I think that's about the time that we started working together, Dr. Daly, when your predecessor, Bob Perry, was chair of the Bay Area Council. Uh, She went on to become the bank's executive vice president and director of research. Dr. Daly earned a bachelor's degree from the University of Missouri, Kansas City, a master's degree from the University of Illinois, Urbana-Champaign, and a Ph.D. from Syracuse. And all of this, I believe, after earning a high school GED in Baldwin, Missouri. Since taking office in October 2018, Dr. Daly is committed to making the San Francisco Fed an even more community-engaged bank that is transparent and responsible to all of the people that live here. She works to connect economic principles to real-world concerns and is a sought-after speaker on monetary policy, labor economics, and increasing diversity within the economics field. Dr. Daly is going to give some comments from the podium here about 20, for about 20 minutes, and then we'll have a discussion that will include your questions. So for those of you here in person, please write them on the card that's on your chair, and they'll get brought up to me. And for those of you online, please post them in the YouTube chat feature. Questions will be brought to me in the Q&A portion after Dr. Daly speaks. So with that, Dr. Daly, the stage is yours. Thank you. So nice to see nice you to again. See you too. So I am absolutely thrilled to be back in person. Zoom is great. It's amazing. And for everyone watching on YouTube, welcome. And for everyone here, I really enjoy seeing faces in the audience. So it's way better than looking at a tiny little lens with no faces behind it. But what we're seeing today in the first, I think, of this thing that I've done where I'm in person and and streaming at the same time is what our new future holds. And so I'm delighted that we're here today. And thank you so much for having me. Now, let me begin by just saying something that I think everyone will recognize. We are in unusual times. The very worst of the pandemic looks to be behind us, and this is nothing short of a welcome relief. But the impact of COVID and its threat to the economy continue to delay the recovery. Worse, perhaps, is that we don't actually know how long any of this will last. So we are in flux, limbo, waiting for the pandemic to be done so we can move to whatever the new future holds. But waiting is hard, and I think most of us know that, and it's very tempting to want to act, to want to respond to what we see before us today as if it's a clear signal, a definitive signal of what we will see tomorrow. Action, after all, feels empowering. But feeling empowered and empowering our future are different things. 
Acting without clarity is risky. It can lead to decisions that have unintended consequences, box us into outcomes, and make the flux we feel today, which is quite uncomfortable, feel or become a more persistent part of our economic future than it needs to be. So today, that's what I'm going to talk about. I'm going to talk about how this recognition that we are living through ongoing uncertainty about the economy and about the pandemic affects monetary policy and affects, importantly, the Federal Reserve's dual mandate and how we accomplish it, the mandate for price stability and full employment. Importantly, I'll talk about why the FOMC is taking a vigilant approach but a measured approach as we navigate the long tail of the pandemic. Now, before I go on, I have to remind you or I want to remind you that the views I express today are my own and do not necessarily reflect anyone else's views in the Federal Reserve System. So let me start by saying, where are we today? Let me take stock. So here's the headline, in case you're unaware. Inflation is high. Both overall and core inflation have been running well above the Fed's 2% goal, I think something we're all aware of. And in fact, overall inflation, the headline numbers, are at their highest levels in 30 years, with price increases in some sectors hitting simply eye-popping rates. The magnitude and the persistence of these readings has come as a surprise to almost everybody. But it's actually not that mysterious when you think about it. Standard economic theory tells us that inflation occurs when demand outstrips supply and prices rise to adjust. So the question then is less about why it's happening and more about how long will it persist. And importantly or specifically, will it last beyond the pandemic? And there are good reasons to think that it won't. I want to focus on three of those reasons in particular, two for demand and one for supply. So let me start with demand. COVID has changed how and where we spend our money. Public health policies aimed at stopping the virus, including lockdowns, social distancing, mask wearing, have kept us from going to the gym, seeing a movie, traveling, and using a host of other services. So we've collectively taken to the internet and we've worked hard to recreate our normal lives, the ones we love, at our homes. Now in economics parlance, which is my training, we have simply rotated our spending, rotated to buy an outsized number of goods, things like home exercise equipment, video games, lawn furniture, cars, while we lift behind and keep leaving behind our spending on services. These individual actions that I'm sure each one of you has taken, I know I have, they feel familiar, but they also add up collectively and show through to the aggregate data. Over the past 18 months since COVID hit our shores, consumer spending, all of consumer spending together, has been historically tilted towards goods, things, and away from services. And something, this is something I'm sure you recognize every day you open your front door and you see the mountain of packages that have stacked up. The result, of course, is higher prices for a range of things than we want more of today than we usually do as we manage our way through this pandemic. Of course, another usual thing, unusual thing that's less well-known but is very unusual characteristic of the pandemic is that people have money to spend. Some of this, of course, reflects the fact that the pandemic has been a highly focused sectoral shock, devastating certain parts of the economy that rely on in-person contact, while boosting other parts of the economy that enable working from home and connecting through technology. For workers in these thriving sectors, these ones related to technology and working from home, incomes have stayed steady or even grown, supporting spending as the economy has struggled. And here's another part of it, though. For other workers, those that were negatively, very negatively affected by the pandemic, financial challenges have been eased with unprecedented fiscal support. Cash grants, expanded unemployment insurance, child tax credits, 
all help those who have been hardest hit maintain their financial well-being through the worst of the pandemic. And this has not only benefited these workers and households, which thankfully it has, but it's also kept overall consumer spending in the United States high, even as the labor market has struggled. So in other words, if I want to just underline and highlight that consequence, during the worst economic shock in U.S. history, demand, consumers, have remained resilient. Unfortunately, though, the resilience of us as consumers has not been matched by the resilience of supply and supply chains. They've been far less robust. COVID-related disruptions have episodically but regularly depressed production across the globe. City by city, you just open the paper, you see the latest one. City by city, plants have shut down or reduced their shifts to curb the virus. And these disruptions, these episodic but frequent disruptions, have accumulated and snowballed, leaving many goods in very short supply. But even when goods are available, when production has come back, it's been very hard to get them delivered in a timely way. Shipping containers are in the wrong places, trucking networks are lagging, and ports across the globe are struggling to clear the backlog of ships waiting to dock and unload. And we're actually not out of the woods on this front yet. With lagging vaccination rates in many countries, shutting down is still often the best way to fight surging infections. These policies, while necessary to curb COVID, leave a long imprint. I'll give you an example. A port closure in Vietnam in August, so several months back, to curb Delta infection surges, continues to be felt up and down the supply chain. The supply chain is, in many ways, fragile. One disruption creates ripple effect that lasts a long time. So if you put all of this together, it's very easy to see why prices are rising. Consumers with income to spend have demanded more goods than they usually do, and suppliers have struggled to keep up. The question, though, is what does this mean for inflation in the future? We understand what's driving inflation today, but what does it mean for inflation in the future? Well, given the factors boosting the prices that we see that I just described, I I expect a moderation in price pressures as the pandemic recedes. Consumers will likely pivot back to normal bundles of goods and services, spending some time with new home entertainment centers and gyms, but also going to the movies, concerts, dinners, and hopefully, if we're really lucky, holiday parties. And similarly, though, as fiscal support starts to roll off, many households will move through that savings they accumulated and the income that they were given, and it will drift back to more historically typical levels. And this will be another factor bringing demand and supply in sync. So we have two factors bringing demand back in sync, but I also think supply will get back in sync. Production and supply chains will be able to catch up, and repair, and this will reduce bottlenecks and ease the pressure on prices. Because remember, inflation's high because supply and demand are out of balance. So as we get demand to ease up and be more in synchronization with the economy and supply catches up as they work through the backlogs, then we'll have the easing of the price pressures that we see. And that's my modal outlook, or the thing that I think is most likely to happen. When these things happen then, we'll return to the dynamics that typically drive the economy, the normal things we're used to. A strong economy brings more demand, brings more supply, and things are in synchronization and move together. But what about the labor market? That's the next natural question you might ask, because after all, the Fed has a dual mandate, price stability and full employment. So what's the future of the labor market? Well, on one hand... The labor market looks tight. Unemployment is down, job openings are at all-time highs, and wages are up in a whole variety of sectors. If you walk anywhere in the United States, basically, but certainly anywhere in the Bay Area, 
you see help wanted signs everywhere. And workers are quitting jobs at record levels. So if you backed up from that, that description of the data, what we saw, these are things we typically only see when we're very near or even at full employment in the economy. But then you have the other hand, and it's a really important hand. We're still over 4 million jobs short of our pre-pandemic peak, 4 million fewer jobs in the United States than we had before COVID came. And that doesn't even count where we would have been if you just extrapolate out and ask if COVID never had occurred. That's a number closer to 6 million missing jobs. Now, some have speculated, and you may have read this, that this is just a new normal. This is a great epiphany that work isn't all it's cracked up to be, so maybe we won't work at all. We'll just keep not working. Well, it's hard to argue against epiphanies, but I'm going to offer a few alternatives. COVID continues to affect schooling and childcare, workplace safety, transportation, and even the ability of businesses to offer predictable and consistent hours in pay, earnings that occur each week that people can depend on. Faced with these barriers, some individuals, a considerable number of individuals, especially women and older Americans, have opted to leave the labor force altogether. Others have stayed in the labor force but continue to search for jobs that feel safe, predictable, convenient, or simply better suited to their aspirations and interests. These behaviors, frankly, are understandable. They're understandable reactions to an unprecedented shock. But as COVID recedes, I expect people to settle in, to land a job they want, return to the labor market to support their families, build careers, have the kinds of economic participation that they had prior to the pandemic. In history, I always like to go back to history and evidence, history supports this prediction. Although labor force participation, how many people want to participate, tends to lag behind the unemployment rate. Unemployment falls and then participation recovers. Time and again, we see that workers come back. We saw this in the last expansion and in most expansions before that. So the bottom line here is that it's too early to count out millions of people currently sitting on the sidelines. We don't know what they want to do. If I step back from the data I just described on inflation and the labor market, here's my summary. Although inflation is high and the labor market seems tight, when we dig into the data, look beyond the averages or beneath the averages to see what's really there, we come away with the idea that at least some of this reflects the ongoing effects of the pandemic. To me, this makes it much, much harder to conclude right now that we are facing a completely new world that will persist once COVID is behind us. Of course, though, if you think about it, the truth is none of us is completely certain what the next six or nine months will be. We don't know how the economy will evolve. We can't really say for sure that the eye-popping rates of inflation won't leave a more lasting imprint on overall price setting. And we don't know for sure how long it will take for sideline workers to come back and participate. And this, frankly, is a hard place for policymakers, monetary policymakers in particular. As monetary policymakers, we have the tools to support the economy if it needs it. And we have the tools to beat back inflation and cool the labor market if that is what's required. We know what to do. The question is, which of the scenarios will turn out to be true? And so in the face of this uncertainty, many have argued that we should act preemptively. We should get ahead of things rather than fall behind the curve. And frankly, this logic has some appeal. If the high readings on inflation last long enough, they could seep into our psychology and change our expectations about future inflation. Households would then expect prices to rise and they would ask for higher wages. 
businesses would give higher wages but then raise prices to offset those increases. And then higher prices to consumers would cause them to ask for even higher wages. And on and on this would go in a vicious wage price spiral that would end well for no one. And this is nothing short of a troubling idea and would be a deeply disturbing trend should it occur. But so far, and this is the important part, there is no evidence, very little evidence, that this is happening. Despite the large jumps in measured inflation, inflation expectations, the psychology, in the longer run, remain relatively stable and well anchored around the Fed's price stability goal of average inflation of 2%. So this suggests that households and businesses sitting out there watching the economy evolve expect inflation to moderate at least somewhat as the global economy emerges from the pandemic. But most importantly, for those of you who think about the Fed a lot, these readings suggest that people understand that the Fed is committed to action and has the tools to act if inflation begins to look more persistent. But of course, that brings us to the next thing that people ask me. I like to share what people ask me with all of you. The next question I get is, but Mary, why not take out some insurance? Why not raise rates anyway, preemptively, to make sure that a painful inflation spiral doesn't occur? to get ahead of psychology? And the main answer is this. Preemptive action is not free. Like all insurance that we buy, there are costs. And policymakers, monetary policymakers, we must balance those costs against the risks of waiting. Monetary policy is a blunt tool, and it acts with a considerable lag. So raising rates today would do very little, almost nothing, to increase production, fix supply chains, or stop consumers, like all of us, from spending more on goods than services. But but it would absolutely curb demand 12 to 18 months from now. And then, should the current high inflation readings that we see and worker shortages that we worry about turn out to truly be COVID-related and transitory, higher interest rates would be bridling our growth just when the economy needs it the most, slowing the economy when millions of sideline workers are ready and able to come back. And against this calculus, I come down on the side of waiting for greater clarity. The Fed, we, are well positioned to act should inflation begin to look more persistent or the labor market look to be at its full employment level It is much, much harder to unwind a preemptive action, a change in the interest rate that bridles the economy too quickly should we turn out to be wrong. The final thing I want to talk about on this front is that not now for interest rates doesn't mean not ever for policy. In fact, earlier this month, the Fed announced that we will reduce the pace of asset purchases, which are a key tool in our toolkit of support, in response to substantial improvement in the economy. And this tapering, as it's called, will slow the amount of support we are adding to the economy and allow it to function more on its own, to get its feet more under it without the extreme accommodation we've been offering. And over the next several quarters, as this tapering completes... We will watch vigilantly to see how the economy does and whether inflation eases and workers come back. As we get a clearer signal, then we stand ready and will be prepared to act, continuing to provide support if support is what the economy needs or to remove support if it's true that we find inflation and employment where they need to be we will do what it takes to ensure that the economy settles at a sustainable pace that delivers ongoing growth to every American. So I'd like to leave you with just a few concluding thoughts. As a policymaker and as a person, and anyone who knows me knows this, I'm biased toward action. 
I like to solve problems. So I completely understand the desire to immediately confront the challenges in front, in front of us, to actually try to offset them. Action gives us a sense of agency, especially at a time when it feels like we have none or very little. But not all motion is forward motion. And reacting in response to things that aren't likely to last will move us farther from, not closer to, our goals. It's extremely easy to mistake motion for competence or action for attention. But I think we all know as we sit here that running headlong into a fog can be costly. So in the face of the unprecedented uncertainty about the evolution of the economy that we face, the best policy is recognizing the need to wait, to gain further clarity about what our real future holds. And although this can be hard, in the end, patience is the bravest action we can take. Thank you. Fabulous. Thank you for those remarks, Dr. Daly. It was very instructive to hear your view of, of where we are, what we know, and what we don't know. And uh, importantly, at least for me, it was all in plain English, so it was <laughs> helpful to understand. Um, so just a reminder for those of you in the audience uh, or online that we will be uh, taking your questions as well. So if you're in the audience, uh, feel free to fill out a card. And if you're online, please put it in the chat on YouTube. And I will uh, start the conversation with Dr. Daly and then take your questions as well along the way. Um, So I know we have a very informed audience here and online who are deeply following every move that the Federal Reserve makes and care a lot about interest rates and all those sorts of things. But before we get to the substance of what you're talking about, I'd, I'd love to just I know you don't wake up every morning and spend all of your time thinking about do we raise rates this month or not. Um, what does the president of the Federal Reserve of San Francisco do? Oh, that's a great question. Um, and one I get asked a lot. So let me let me tell you a little bit about what I do and, and why I might have one of the best jobs in in the world. So every day, so we have this banner at the front of the lobby, and when people can come back to our bank, we'll see it, right? And the banner says, our work serves every American and countless global citizens. And we have committed to the idea of unreserved opportunity. That's an opportunity that's not reserved for very few. It's not reserved for a certain segment, and, and that's important to us. So then how do I do my work with those as our goals and those as our mantra. Well, it's really simple. I have really three important jobs. I lead a bank of about 200, 200, if only 200,000, 2,000 people, 2,000 people, and each one of them is committed to the mission deeply, but also we're looking at how do we work together? How do we collaborate? How do we go out during a pandemic and continue to serve the American people, whether it's getting cash to where we need it to be, supervising banks, getting PPP loans facilitated, or doing monetary policy? All of this is for um, the American people, but we, we are leading a bank. The other thing that I get to do, which is really terrific, is monetary policy, thinking about where the interest rate's going. But it's not that I get up every morning thinking about the interest rate. I get up every morning thinking about people in my community who are struggling to find workers, and then I think of the people who don't feel comfortable going back to work. Or I was at Walgreens the other day, and I'm standing behind a woman who had to put things back out of her basket because she goes to Walgreens once a month, and things had risen in price, and she only had her money. And that was a painful thing to witness. I've actually been in that situation. But that's who I think about. And then I think about the countless moms still at home who really can't come back to work yet, but they want to. So I'm trying to balance those things off. So you can see just from this description that my job is uh, an amazing one because every day I have the privilege of serving. And that's really how I think about it. I hope you can hear the passion in my voice. I like every single aspect of my job, and I don't do it alone. You know, I have those 2,000 people working with me um, who are probably all watching us to see because it's my first in-person live event. But they're really committed to making sure that we do all of our jobs effectively and well and with 
with love and dignity, basically. So that's in a nutshell what it is. Uh, I can you can always come with me and have an hour by hour uh, edition. It's less exciting than what I just described, but <laughs> I'm happy <laughs> to do it. I can wear one of those head cams. That's great. <laughs> that's great. So you have all kinds of sources of information for how you think about those issues of of serving. Um, some of them are formal economic statistics and, and a number of economists that work for you and for the Fed overall who are bringing that to bear. But it's also observations that you see from being out. And, you know, San Francisco is not like the rest of the, the California, let alone the rest of the country. So how do you how do you process that process that? And what are the things that you look at? What sure. really drives your view about what's going on? Well, that's a that's a great question, and, and one of the things that we've always done at the San Francisco Fed and every other there are twelve reserve banks, twelve regional feds, and, and every president in every place, and all the teams there would be doing these types of things. So we obviously look at the data. We have all the newest data. We're looking at deeply thinking about that. But that's never been sufficient, and so we also talk to contacts, and those contacts are business leaders, community leaders, people who are running not-for-profits all the way up to people who, you know, run the, the biggest companies in our, in our country and the biggest companies in the world, and that's always been the case. But the pandemic made that even more so because you need this on-the-ground information. So I've spent a lot of my time, uh, virtually as it turns out now, but doing CEO roundtables, community leader roundtables, talking to populations, African-American populations, Latinx population, Native American populations, leaders in those communities. What do you need? What do you need? We're doing a, an event this week on child care. How important is that for the infrastructure? And it really is this combination, as you said. You have to source from a lot of places, but you're, you're never in a didactic conversate. You're never just like, let me tell you what we do. It's really, let me hear what you have to say. And let me understand where those, those issues and pain points are. And I'll give you a real world example. We had teams out doing this virtually, of course, when we were rolling out, the government was rolling out the PPP program, the Paycheck Protection Program, but the Fed was facilitating it through the PPPLF, which is the Paycheck Protection Program Lending Facility. But we sent our bank supervisors out to ask community banks, larger banks, what's getting in your way? What's challenging? Why can't you get the money you need? Then we would bring that information back in, and we changed the program. So it evolved in real time as it was rolling out. Um, many compared it to building an airplane while you're flying it. But I think the real issue is we were able to get out to our communities where we had relationships already and then source information in real time that comes back and shapes how we, we craft our programs. And that doesn't stop it at those programs. It, it goes all the way to monetary policy. Um, you mentioned in my introduction that I'm committed to us being a community-engaged bank, but that's what it means, right? We, we only exist to serve. And if we don't ask the people we're serving, then we actually can't ever do a good job. And so that's really the part of it, data-driven and people-dependent. So the 12th district is different from other districts in a lot of ways. Um, are there particular perspectives or uh, early indicators or anything about where you are that you feel is... Um, different than, and helpful for those conversations when you get together with your colleagues? You know, the, the interesting thing is that you can point to things where we lead. You can point to things where we lag in the district. So I have the nine, 12th district is the nine western states. It's, a, it's the largest geographic area of the regional feds, largest population, most output, all the things you can calculate to say rank one. But the most important thing about all of this is that if you take the 12th district, the nine western states, you have a really good sample of the entire nation because you have businesses that are resource dependent. You have businesses that are completely technological. You have businesses that are part of the thriving community, the uh, businesses that I talked about when I said technology and work from home. You know, Silicon Valley is, is generating a lot of that capacity. But then you have a traveling tourism industry and a farming industry and other things that have been just really disrupted by the pandemic. We have, you know, problems with getting public health access to people, to populations in low and moderate income communities. And then we have one of the highly, most highly vaccinated, educated populations in the, in the country. So we have this mix. And what I bring back to 
my colleagues at the FOMC and what I really can capitalize on is we see everything. And so it's really about it helps with trade-offs because ultimately policy, usually central bankers are not very popular. And the reason is because we have trade-offs. We're constantly facing trade-offs. But making sure that those trade-offs don't forget whole swaths of the population that we serve is the really important aspect of it. And I feel like that's my special value add by having the 12th district is I can talk about everything and everyone's experience in a way that's really equitable and allows us to make optimal decisions. Great. Um, you mentioned in your talk that you like to also look at history and different recoveries and every recession is different. And you've been at least since you've been uh, here through three very different ones. Completely. Um, exactly. Uh, <laughs> My own little history book at this point. There we go. Hopefully uh, the, the uh, future will have a different one that's not as challenging as the, the last ones. But is there anything in history uh, as we are in this downturn and recovery that really provides a perspective for you that people aren't paying as much attention to as you think they should? You know, one thing, that's uh, thanks for that question, because I've been thinking a lot about that. You know, in many ways, you think this is an unprecedented shock. We haven't had something like this since 1918. And in 1918, we didn't have a global economy. So we weren't so dependent on how interrelated we all are across the globe. And that might make you think we just don't have a playbook. We don't have what can we possibly use from other expansions or other recoveries or other recessions to learn here. And I think that's a mistake to think that. You know, I, I know it's, for me, it's tempting to think of this is unprecedented, but, but when I really think about it, what we have is a series of dynamics that have occurred in the economy that we actually have historical reference for. And one of those historical dynamics that gets almost no play ever is that we have, as a central bank, as frequently taken the punch bowl away too quickly as we have left it on the table too long. And what that means, and I mentioned this in the speech, is it's not about a punch bowl. It's about millions of workers who don't find themselves with employment when the economy is strong enough to absorb them. And in this case, it's safe enough to come back. And so a key lesson I recognize each and every day that as I think about these these decisions to make right now is that we have one of the lowest labor force participation rates in the industrialized world. And now it's fallen more. Other countries are coming back faster than we are to work. And I really think hard about what would it mean if we lock away that potential by sidelining them before they're ready or able to come back. And that's a history lesson that doesn't get as much play as the 1970s inflation um, difficulties and the Volcker disinflation gets. But boy, is it an important part of our history that we can learn from. And, and I really think about it every day. Great. Um, there's a lot of questions coming in, and I'm going to work a lot of these into the, to the questions that I asked Dr. Daly as we go forward. But a reminder, if you're online, put them on YouTube. And if you're here, put them in cards, and I'll get to as many as we can. Uh, so as you said, a lot of the, the media attention headline conversations around the Fed are about inflation, but you have that dual mission. And as you described, we've got a uh, workforce participation challenge that there are structural things that make it challenge, but with things that are specific to the pandemic. Um, I know these are not Federal Reserve tools. You have a lot of tools, but you don't control the labor supply. We don't. But what, what are the things that we should be thinking about to try and beyond what the specifics that the Fed can do to help improve that labor force participation and have more people have opportunities. Sure. And, and let me start by saying that while we don't have, as you mentioned, we don't have uh, the tools to change labor supply, we do have a very important tool to assist its recovery. And that is running a sustained expansion, a sustainable expansion that gives people the time to come back in. And we saw this in the in the last expansion before the pandemic that, you know, if you remember, we, we took two rate cuts in 2019 because the economy was facing some headwinds. And, and we recognized at the time we might not be at full employment. We needed to learn about it experientially as opposed to thinking that our models told us what the exact number is and, and consider that done. And so I think that's one of the lessons the Fed can do and we can contribute run a sustainable expansion so that people have an opportunity to fully participate. But we won't be able to solve all the issues, or even most of them, because many of these things relate back to, let's start with, and I, I, I would call this in economics 
labor economics uh, work infrastructure, but I know infrastructure, people think roads, bridges, and things like that. So let me just call it the things that are important for us getting to work. So what are important for us getting to work? Well, for parents, child care. For people helping elderly parents, elder care. For others, transportation networks, safe workplaces. Those are all essential ingredients to having people feel like they can come back to work. And did I forget schools? Schools being reliably in session. Uh, vaccinations for young children could be a game changer, an important one, because, you know, it's not, we've opened schools, but yet, you know, I know many parents, here's what their life is like. Every morning they get up, I was actually on the phone with the person who helps me with speech writing, and she said, I got to get off. My daughter's school is calling. And I said, she and I, I think, both had the collective, oh, no, I hope it's not a COVID exposure. It was just a toothache. It was fine. Kid could stay in school. But the bottom line is every parent lives in that fear that today is going to be the day when one of my kids comes home and is homeschooled, and the other kid has to be picked up and shuttled around to soccer and everything else. So those are hard things. And if you're a mom or a dad who's principal job is caring for your child, you know, you're the principal home carer, then you're like struggling with a lot of things. So all of those things matter for how quickly the labor force can recover. And those are pandemic related. But there are other things that are not pandemic related. And those are things like, you know, child care, access to affordable child care that's reliable. And we are un unfortunately lag in that capacity as an industrialized nation. And finding out what the fiscal agents, congressional, Congress and the administration will figure out how to do that. But the important thing is that is, an, that is a good tool for getting everyone the ability to make a choice about whether they want to work, not be told they have to take a certain path because they don't have access to this. Another important one that we always talk about, but boy, you can't talk about it enough, is we have to educate our population so that they can take the jobs we want. And I've been on that bandwagon for a long time, but I now have a new one that I'm going to add to it. If you're a firm out, you know, you're listening and you run a firm, it's really a, an important time for us to recognize that we have historic deficits in how many people have credentials, like a college education or above. And why can't we as firms actually ask, have we over-credentialized the ability to work? Have we made this so hard for people who are actually quite capable and have a ton of skills and lots of energy? And so let's rethink whether our job really requires a college degree. Maybe it just requires a set ambition, it's a trainable skill, and if you're dedicated and you want to work, we've got room for you. I know I'm thinking about that as a, as a president of the Fed. I know we're thinking about it as the Federal Reserve System. But what if every firm took the moment of the pandemic to think about that? That's a structural thing that, that anyone can change, right? So th some things need the federal government, but these things, they just take businesses. Great. Uh, so you mentioned infrastructure, and you obviously have a fiscal partner in a lot of these questions about where the economy is going. As we all know, the president signed the infrastructure bill yesterday. Uh, what influence is that going to have on your perspective of the economic outlook? And then I'm going to ask you the next question, which is on the Build Back Better. What, what do those, what, what's your perspective on what that might do? So let me say that, you know, we don't have any role to play in the fiscal negotiations. I actually don't think, don't talk to people about those. And so I'm not speaking with on the specifics of the infrastructure bill or, or build that better. But I am going to speak from a person who studied economics my whole career. And here's what we know. And I'm going to re reference history again. But I think it's also just actual common common sense. Everybody can think about this. If we have better roads, better bridges, reliable air traffic networks, reliable you know, distribution networks, we are better off, we're more effective, and importantly, we're more competitive with our global partners that have spent more on infrastructure to keep their infrastructure up to date. So infrastructure is generally a win because it, it, you don't build a bridge or a road overnight, so it doesn't typically push inflation up. You know, because it's not crowding things out. It's going to take place over a number of years. But it absolutely puts things in the economy that increase our productive capacity, make us more productive. That's the pie expanding for everybody rather than, you know, something where we're just taking from one and we're not building anything. It's a good investment. So I expect this to, to help and to actually increase our productive capacity and our growth potential going forward. Okay. 
Um, there are a lot of questions here about uh, the level of both monetary and fiscal stimulus and the pace and scale of that. And is that an important element of what's driving inflation beyond the elements of the pandemic that you mentioned? And how should we think about the level of federal support and deficits as you look forward? So I want to separate. So, you know, as an economist, you really have to have you have to be a card carrying deficit and debt hawk. You just I mean, they won't let you have a degree. So you just have to start with that. And what's really important is this was a historic shock. A pandemic is a really bad thing. And we hadn't had one since 1918. That's 100 years or more ago. And the idea that we would just leave people behind because we are afraid we'd increase the deficit, that's, I mean, I grew up in the Midwest, that's like eating your seed corn. That's like sort of saying, well, I'm going to be so short-sighted that I'm going to say, well, that might have this, but then I lose population. I lose people's ability to have financial well-being and keep their livelihoods. Apart from just being sort of hard to grasp morally or, or ethically, it actually is terrible for the economy. So the unprecedented fiscal support, the unprecedented monetary support is something that I think history will judge us well on. We will be on the right side of history for that. The question, though, is, you know, we're all trying to build a bridge so that we get through the pandemic and we get people to the other side so that the economy can pick up and we're going. And you, we can discuss, debate, argue about whether the bridge was too long and now there's a little too much fiscal in there or monetary or the bridge was too, you know, some would argue it's too short. What I would argue is this. We haven't yet even seen the tail of Delta go away. It's still affecting global economies. We, fortunately, are moving beyond it, which is why you're able to come here. If we still had a, a, a surging Delta, we wouldn't even be here. So we are fortunate, but we are also unique. You know, if you go other places in the country, you do not see the same in the country and also in the world. You don't see the same sort of uh, movement through it. And and so it's really hard for me to argue the bridge is too long when so many people feel still disrupted by the pandemic. Will we have to pay for these invest these this spending going forward? Absolutely. But that's why pivoting from um, support to investment. So support comes in the way of cash grants, unemployment insurance aid, and now we see the economy picking up speed and can absorb those individuals without that support. But we're pivoting to investment, which is infrastructure and other things, which actually says we're going to build our productive capacity out. We're going to come out of the pandemic, hopefully with greater potential than we went into the pandemic with. And that would be a great outcome. It still has to unfold, but that would be something that I think all of us would benefit from and be proud of in the end. So how do you think about and how should we be discussing the impact that this environment has had on asset prices? The stock market, real estate prices feel like they're out of control again. Um, how, how, do, how should we be thinking about that in the context of this uncertainty? Sure. Um, so the stock market is... Um euphoric, and many people have benefited from that. Anybody who's got a 401k or other investments has benefited from that. And this is not uncommon when you're seeing people are pretty optimistic about the future, right? Because when we get through the shock, we think we have a lot of potential. And that's partly related, and there are many things that drive the stock market, and I'm not going to talk about all of those things. I'm going to talk about the things that seem more fundamental to me. One fundamental is that a pandemic is different than even a financial crisis. It doesn't really destroy productive capacity. People don't get destroyed in terms of their, their livelihoods went away. We had that fiscal support. Businesses don't lose their, their balance sheets. They don't lose their buildings. We didn't destroy things. And so we're waiting for the pandemic to work itself through so we can pick back up and, and go. And the stock market knows that. And it's why the stock market is it's supportive. It, it knows that monetary and fiscal authorities across the globe are helping get people through. And it's betting that people are going to be ready to go once the pandemic is behind us. And if you look at consumer demand, we're ready. We're ready to go, right? And it's just about supply catching up. So, so I think that's where the, some of the euphoria of the stock market is. You know, I personally, when it gets really euphoric, I, I think maybe they're, we're all like too enthusiastic. But... It's better than being less enthusiastic, I guess. Uh, on the housing, this is a very different thing. Housing is completely different than 
uh, it was in the financial crisis. And let me talk about two completely different things about it, right? One is households are in very good position. Savings rates are high relative to historical norms. And balance sheets, household balance sheets, are in very good shape. People used some of the money that they either saved not traveling if they were working and or that they got through the, the, the assistance checks to pay down debt or to not take on more debt. This is a good thing because when households are well capitalized and their balance sheets are in good shape, it means we're much less at risk should a housing should the housing prices slow down or values come down a little bit. So why do we have these elevated um, prices? Well, people have money, and the interest rate is good. Mortgage interest rates are good, and people want more space. So we all had to go home and live in whatever space we thought was enough prior to a pandemic when we were working at home with all of our family members. And for many people, they decided that was not enough space, that a studio apartment with uh, two people and a baby, two adults and a baby, just isn't enough to actually manage your life. And so people started trading up getting better, getting bigger places. Uh, many people, and you saw this in 1918. Reading about 1918 is so informative. In 1918, here in the Bay Area, people, you know, think about how undeveloped we were at the time. People fled the city to move out to, you know, past Oakland and into Contra Costa, right? And then when the pandemic ended, they came back for their roaring 20s to be in the cities. Well, we've done the same thing, right? We're just doing it in even more far-fung places. So we, we leave, we pick up out of the city, and we move. And in the depth of the pandemic, I would drive into San Francisco to, to go to work at the office, and you'd see not a single light in these high-rises. Nobody walking the streets, no lights on. So it's not even like people are here working from home. And now I drive in. Sometimes I have to come in at 4 or 5 in the morning to be on East Coast time, and there are lights everywhere, and people getting coffee and things. So I think part of what you're seeing in housing prices is this need to get more space, but I'm already starting to see some of this return to city living. So, you know, there's a normal balancing things there, but Lenny, uh, you know, you and I have, um, and I hope you will call me Mary. I'm the Dr. Daly thing. I, I actually told my team when I first got the president, they called me President Daly. I said, well, you can call me Mary, and so then they started calling me President Mary. So, um, <laughs> I, uh, I would just say you can go with Mary. Um, but the, the thing we remember from way back when we first met is that housing's always been a challenge in the Bay Area. And in most American cities, we have too little housing that's affordable for the populations that we need to, to serve. So that's a perennial issue and one not just specific to the pandemic. And we need to tackle it. Okay. Um, you mentioned in your talk and in response to one of the earlier questions that we did have some history lessons from 1918 around the pandemic. Um, I hope we have a different kind of roaring 20s where people are, in fact, out and spending money on services, but that we don't have the downside of that. Me too, completely. Um, but one of the things that you said we didn't have then that is now is we're clearly a global economy. Right. You talked about the supply chain impacts. Different countries have very different levels of response to COVID. Uh, they're different, somewhat different, although mostly aligned uh, stimulus support and monetary policy. But we're still in a very uncertain global economy. Mm -hmm. So how does that influence the, your outlook and questions about how we should or should not be responding today? Absolutely. I mean, I, you know, I didn't spend a lot of time talking about the global economy, but when I said that, you know, we have the tools, we know the framework, we actually understand underlying economic dynamics, but what's uncertain is it really comes back to as goes COVID, so goes the economy. And you can double underline that when you say, as goes COVID, so goes the global economy. So the uncertainty about how the next six to nine months will look is, is, is high. And it's high in part because we don't know in the U.S. how inflation in the labor market will shape up. But it's high globally because we don't know how COVID's going to, to shape up. Is Delta Plus going to be a real thing? And is it going to send another derailment to um, the, the fledgling recoveries in other countries? Will it further disrupt supply chains or keep people from coming back? And, you know, my um, when I ever say anything about what people should do to help the economy, I say this, get vaccinated, find a way to get the COVID pandemic behind us, 
that's our path, and that's the path globally, it's the path nationally, and in the meantime, you're right. I mean, I, the thing I would say is you're absolutely right. We have a lot of uncertainty globally, and that's the wild card. If, if globally we can get COVID behind us or at least find mitigation strategies that don't shut down factories or don't uh, result in people having to completely curb production or disrupt supply chains further, then I have optimism we'll get through this. But if we don't, then we'll have uh, we'll be sitting six to nine months from now in a very different situation, having a different kind of conversation. I hope that COVID ever, forever isn't our new normal. I think we can beat this, but we have to do it. Um, I, one of the questions here that was about why is inflation so much different in the United States than in other countries around the world today? You know that was true. Uh, in fact, my my. T- Economic research uh, colleagues, they they were talent. You know, we looking, we look at the data constantly, as you noted, and so we're looking at inflation in other countries, and we seem to be higher, and then not so much. So inflation in other countries is also picking up because ultimately all countries buy and sell goods from each other, and a supply chain disruption in Vietnam affects the United States, it affects Germany, it affects you know Singapore. It, it doesn't matter where you are; you're going to see these things come through, and so. In part, Americans have been eager to get out, more eager, I think, than other countries. And so the demand and supply challenges emerge more quickly. But now everybody wants to get out because people are tired of being locked up. And as they want to get out, then demand surges in those countries. (coughs) Supply is still lagging. And we find ourselves with inflation in in a variety of places. Uh, Where the U.S. has been pretty different is in... um, the response of labor supply. And I think part of that has been that, you know, other countries have opened their childcare resources more quickly than we have. And ours is mostly in schools, but uh, aftercare programs, for instance, in the United States have really not opened fully. And in other countries, they've been more uh, responsive as COVID's rolled off. And so that has been a difference. But in inflation, other countries have caught up and not such a great thing if you think about that, but (laughs) they have caught up to us. Okay. Um, I read this morning that the backlog of ships at L.A. port were down 29 percent from the peak. So we may be working through some of these things. But as you said, there still can get another shock someplace else in the world that flows through that. Absolutely. Um, do, you, do you think that we're going to have a dramatic reconfiguration of supply chains and business as a result of this? So, you know, this is fascinating to me anyway, but... I'm geeky, so but I'll let me tell you about it. So back in 2019, for the pandemic, the end of 2019, I we were having our one of our economic advisory council meetings, which is you know CEOs of major companies, medium-sized companies, uh, smaller companies, and they were all talking about how they were going to have to rethink their supply chains because of trade policy. They were really worried that they had over-invested in, say, China and under-invested in finding other places. So they were talking about the resiliency of supply chains and how efficiency is not the only thing. And then we got COVID, and that has locked in that mindset. So now I do see a reconfiguration because I think that we, we've come through this great era of um, efficiency, cost reduction, efficiency, et cetera. And what businesses have learned, suppliers have learned, is that if you drive it to the point where it's so efficient, you've probably made it more fragile. And resiliency is important because consumers get frustrated, you lose orders, you get frustrated, you lose too much sleep or money. And, and so I really do think we're going to reconfigure this. And you know, there's an issue about why is the Port of Oakland undersubscribed right now? I live you know, in Oakland, so I look at it. They're not, they don't have a backlog of ships. And why is L.A. completely oversubscribed? In a perfect world, this would just move around, but these are pretty rigid fixed things, and they do take this sort of let's reconfigure and rethink the supply chains, find different ports of call. Maybe we'll move back to smaller ships. You know, a big ship is an efficiency ship, but a bunch of smaller, more nimble ships that can go to different ports, that's a resiliency feature. So I know uh, the port of Baltimore is really working hard to try to get people to go all the way around to Baltimore (laughs) as opposed to stop in L.A. So we'll see. But I do, I absolutely think that, that our our evolving future will be one focused on resiliency and that resiliency will be a reconfiguration of the things that we've now come to, to know we need basically. And as you well know, the long run drivers of the economy really have to do with growth, have to do with labor force participation, growth and with productivity improvement. Right. 
Um, what, what's your outlook for productivity? And do you, is the pandemic changed your view of that? Or what, what do you think is going to happen here in the next while? So we, we were, you know, in 2019, so just a level set here, 2019, the global economic forecasters, people do projections across countries, while we're saying the same thing. We're in a, a productivity growth lull. It looks a little bit more like some of the slower periods of productivity growth, not the rapid growth that we had in the 2000s. And we also have a labor force growth lull because of the aging of the population across the globe. So that's why you saw that forecasts of potential growth across countries, no matter what country, were all for coming in around you know, 2% as opposed to 4 or 5%. And so then the question is, does the, does the, how does the pandemic shape that? Well, this is why I'm so focused on labor force participation. We really have to kind of keep that going because the aging of the population is a downward trend. But on productivity, I don't, I don't actually know how it's going to shape up. In many ways, you would think that all this ability to use technology will make us more productive. But that will take some intention, right? We won't be able to just hope for the best. We're going to have to really work for the best and, and think how can we be productive and how can we increase productivity going forward. The key there, and I've done a lot of studies about productivity growth, and you, know, you always have kind of these factors. You can invest in capital or you can invest in people. And the real lagging piece in the United States is investments in people. Our labor quality that means the number of bodies times the amount of skills that they have has been falling, lagging, not growing as much as it used to, and, and certainly falling behind other countries. So that brings us back to what can we do? Well, we can invest in our people. Our, our human assets are our best assets, and, and investing in them is the sure way to get to good growth. Great. Uh, I mentioned in the introduction, uh, introducing you, and you talked a little bit about it, but I want you to talk a little bit more about why diversity is so important to you, not just in the economics field, but more broadly in, in the economy. Yes, and thanks for that question, of course. And, and I'll make two, two points, and let me start from the vantage point of a policymaker. So there is just a fact that who sits around the table and who has voice matters for policy. Why? Well, because people from different backgrounds different upbringings, different uh, experiences. They use a different lens, and they come with different lenses. They see different problems than other people would see, and they find different solutions than other people would see. So the optimal policy requires the population that you have as policymakers, the group of policymakers, to reflect the populations that you serve. Otherwise, they're missing groups, and, and we won't see everything, and we won't find solutions. And that's true for gender, race, ethnicity, diversity, but it's also true for where you grew up. Did you grow up in a rural area or a city? Did you grow up in, like I did, a lower uh, socioeconomic class or a higher socioeconomic class? Someone asked me, do we need more of you? And I said, well, no, we need more of lots of other people too, right? It's not just you make 10 of me and now you're better off. It's that I, am, I have an important place at the table, but so do other people have an important place at the table. And that's a critical reason why I work so hard for not just diversity, because that could just be an optical delusion, right? But not illusion, delusion, and really for inclusion. Inclusion is voice, and voice is what makes better policy, better decisions. Um, the other reason that diversity matters, and, and this I just uh, worked with some colleagues of mine in San Francisco, Fed, to, to talk about, is that our ability, our willingness, our just inertia of tolerating inequity in our society is costing us a lot in terms of the size of the economic pie and how quickly it will grow. So if you think about who's sidelined in the population, who doesn't actually work or have access to education, it's, it's really in communities of color. Um, and that, that just ability or willingness or inertia to tolerate that is costing us in terms of how many people can participate in our economy and make the pie bigger for everyone. So diversity is essential for policy, but ultimately it's essential for ensuring that we can hand future generations a better future than the one we inherited. And as I get older, I mean, I always think this is the right way to think about it, but as I get older, I'm more pressed to recognize that I do want to give the next generation a better future than the one I received. Otherwise, why was I here? That's sort of how I think about it. That's great. Uh, 
So as I'm sure all of you feel, we could talk to Dr. Mary about these topics Dr. for Mary. all day. Um, <laughs> but we're unfortunately at that point in the agenda where we're going to have to ask you one last question. Um, so uh, I know you don't like to talk about this very much, but I, I and others have admired your career and what you bring and the quality of who you are as a person. But, um, you know, you have gotten to a point in your career not by somebody handing it to you. Um, if you were advising someone if they would like to be a future Dr. Mary, what would you what would you advice would you give to a young woman or a young man who's thinking about pursuing something like you've pursued? So if, if uh, I ask answer this question a lot, and and my team knows that if you want to give me like the proverbial candy, you let me talk to young people, because I have so much faith in young people, and what what I received that really changed everything for me is people ha- giving me a hand up, people mentoring me, people being willing to just sit down and, and say, hey, I think you can do this. And when I boil all that down and I think about what that really was, it was the gift of being able to see something in myself that I could, I mean, something in me that I couldn't see in myself. So the thing I'm going to talk to y- every young person listening about is uh, the road is, is always going to be crooked. There is nobody, if you really think of it, that took this straight path. It's very rare. So don't get discouraged. Don't find yourself you know, saying, well, I didn't make this step that I wanted to, so now things are, are going to be less for me. But importantly, ask people. Ask people what they think. Because we all get caught up in thinking less. We're capable of less than we really are. The number of times each day I spend telling anybody, but young people in particular, you're more than you think you are. You're more capable than you're allowing yourself to be, to see. That's really the gift. And for all you young people, take that gift. Ask for that gift. Want that gift. Let other people see futures in you that you might not feel so comfortable in. Because it's not wrong to be uncomfortable, but it's really can be bridling to not own that possibility and not try to run with it. And for everybody who's not young, who I'm talking to, help out. You know, you, you, we all think that nobody wants to hear from us, but they do. They absolutely do. And they more than now than ever, I think, need us because there's an experience of having lived a long time that allows you to think that today's discomfort won't last forever. And if you can just share that with people, that is in itself an inspiration and helpful. So I did not get here by myself and, uh, in any way, and, and I try to give gratitude and appreciation to people, not only in the universe, but you know, I call them. Um, every time something good happens, I said, see, I can see your DNA in that, in that decision I just made or in that opportunity I just got. And that's just because some people along the line were willing to take a chance on me and I had the good fortune of being willing to listen. Terrific. Well, unfortunately, we're out of time, but please join me in thanking Dr. Mary Daly of the Federal Reserve of San Francisco for spending her first public appearance with us. That's so great. So great. Thank you. And, and with that, this meeting of the Commonwealth Club of San Francisco is adjourned. Have a great day, everyone. Thank you. You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you. Go to commonwealthclub.org donate. Think your way around the world with our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live at our events. Thank you for listening and for your support. Thank you.